Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Yeah, good evening. It's great to have you with us this evening and welcome once again to In Context here on truthfm.uk. This is the radio show where we look at a passage of scripture and where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on internet radio by going to truthfm.uk or on the truth.fm app or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast. But however you got here, it's jolly good to have you with us once more. My name is Patrick. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He is my Lord, my Saviour, and my teacher. And I'm learning to follow him through learning of his teachings and trying to put them into practice day by day. If you've been uh, with us before on a Monday evening, then you'll know that we are reading our way through the writings of Luke. And if you've not been with us before, well, you know that now. We've spent the last few weeks in the infancy narratives of Luke's gospel, leaving Jesus with his parents back in the town of Nazareth, where he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Well, having begun his account with a record of the announcement and birth of the prophet John, it only makes sense that Luke should begin the main section of this book with a record of his work. But before he does this, he sets the main story within the context of world history. And I think he does that for two reasons. First, I think he's showing himself to be a credible historian, aware of and familiar with general history, and verifying the historic veracity of Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I'm a reliable uh, keeper of these records. And if Theophilus, the chap to whom he was writing, had wanted to check up on any of this, well, he could quite easily have done so. And the second reason I think he does this is to set things within the context of world history. Today, we would probably say somewhere during AD 28 to 29, but, well, that would have meant nothing to his readers. Anyway, this is what he writes for us. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, 
and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, we could say something about each of those listed, but I've absolutely no intention of turning this into a history lesson. Um, as exciting though that might be, that certainly wasn't Luke's purpose in writing. As we suggested, Luke mentions these things in order to set everything into the context of world history, and not simply the history of the Jews. We'll meet a couple of these characters a little later on, but for now, let's simply observe that time has moved on. Herod, the so-called Great, is no longer king of Judea. He had been gone quite a long time, as it happens, and Caesar Augustus is no longer Emperor of Rome, as he was when we left off last time. Right, now that's sorted, what actually happened? Well, Luke tells us that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And that's actually really rather revealing, if you'll excuse the pun, that the word of God, or sometimes simply the word, is a term used rather frequently by Luke and often in the sense of fulfilment or of obedience. Mary had said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then, following the birth of Jesus, there in the temple of Jerusalem, Simeon exclaimed, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And here, in this text, uh, the term is used in the sense of prophetic pronouncement. The word of God came to John. Centuries, many centuries earlier, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah the prophet. And then there was Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. And then the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. So John is continuing in this prophetic tradition, as it were, and Luke is making this clear to us in the language which he uses. John is, of course, no stranger to us. Luke has already recorded for us his background, along with the prophetic hymn of his father, Zechariah, and he appears very much in the tradition of a prophet of old. He is simply the prophet John. But I think it can be difficult at times for us to see John as anything other than the forerunner of the Messiah, um, as he was. But for the Jews of his day, who 
hadn't read to the end of the book. He was initially something altogether revolutionary. To many, he was a, a breath of fresh air, or maybe more like a whirlwind. Luke has already recorded the angel saying to Zechariah that he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, and here he now comes. Let's listen to Luke's record of his work. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be immersed by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be immersed and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I immerse you in water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, as I was recording this reading earlier, I deliberately said that John was proclaiming an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's not how the phrase is rendered in the version from which I usually read, nor indeed by the vast majority of English translations. You might have noticed this if you were reading along. But the traditional reading of baptism is, I think, particularly unhelpful. It's not a word understood by the majority of English speakers, and it tends to be used either metaphorically or exclusively within religious circles, and then with a variety of meanings. Literally, we might prefer to use the term immersion, although dipping might be more accurate and even washing probably more appropriate. In fact, I rather like the idea that where John came washing people in water, the one who was coming after him would wash them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In general, the Jews were quite familiar with ceremonial washing, and so it would not have appeared to them to be particularly unusual, except here it is directly associated with repentance and with the forgiveness of sins. So it should be quite clear to any reader of the New Testament scriptures that the practice of immersion or dipping in water was not an insignificant practice. It's a significant feature of the message of John in announcing the coming of the king, um, so much so that he is known elsewhere as John the Immerser or John the Dipper. Um, the name John the Baptist sounds rather like you'd be looking him up under the letter B in the telephone directory. Though I'm not terribly sure that he was connected all the way out in the wilderness. Anyway, it was a significant feature. Um, these washings, these practice of immersion, uh, a significant feature of the message of John, and it will be a significant feature of the message of the good news of Jesus, following the arrival of the Spirit in volume two. And in every instance, it marks a turning point not only in the action of God, but in the response of mankind in turning back to him. This is why Luke describes it as an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That idea of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is rooted within the Hebrew scriptures. It was a part of the messianic expectation, and here it's closely connected with immersion or dipping in water. 
And we'll say a little more about that word repentance in just a moment. Well, having spoken earlier of the historic context in which the word of God came to John, Luke proceeds by placing things within the context of the story of God. He speaks of John as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And the text which Luke quotes is a particularly significant text in the, the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a particularly significant text introducing the second section of the book which looks forward to deliverance from exile and to the salvation of Israel. And he presents the text as speaking of one preparing for the coming of the king himself. And of course, this is the role of the prophet John. And do you remember how Simeon had said in the temple, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples? Well, now we are told through Isaiah that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that whole picture of salvation is really something of a, an important theme running through the writings of Luke. Well, having spoken of the historic context and the prophetic context of the story of God, Luke records John's, uh, uh, John's words uh, addressing the anticipated response of the religious classes. He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hmm. Well, though the message here is essentially one of judgment, a theme continued a little further on, the key word has to be repentance. That was the message of John. The message of the prophets was never primarily one of judgment. It was always a call to repent, to, to change. God has never had pleasure in the death of anyone. He said that, didn't he? He's always wanted mankind to come to repentance and to change his ways. There had long been a belief among the Jews that simply being a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, that that was sufficient to guarantee their spiritual security. But of course they were wrong. If any were going to be a part of whatever blessings would come through the Messiah, they were going to need to change from the inside out. And that's what repentance is really all about. It's more than simply being sorry, more than having a change of mind. It's all about turning around. 
It's a change in our way of thinking that brings about a change in the way we live our lives. All the way back in the beginning of this gospel, we read about the angel who, you may recall, appeared to Zechariah, the father of John, whilst he was in the temple, announcing his birth, saying, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and so on. This is what is meant by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. It was no good simply feeling bad about what they had done. It was no good simply beating themselves up for having done wrong. The people, all of us, needed to change the way we lived our lives. And then he speaks to those in the crowd who want to know what they need to do in order to make real changes in their lives. Uh, it's no good simply being told to change. We need to know what we need to do. And so he told them to take care of those who were without clothing and food, to, to act justly, to be honest and not to take advantage of others. All things which were common themes throughout the books of the prophets. And though John is essentially saying nothing more than the prophets had been saying throughout the centuries, his message would certainly have been seen as radical, going against the norms of society. But here it was a message of preparation for the king a message of people needing to prepare themselves by changing the ways they lived their lives. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And that is essentially the last we will hear from John. We'll return to Herod a little later in the story, but for John, his work has been done. The hearts of the people have been prepared, the time has come to make way for the coming of the king. Now when all of the people were immersed, and when Jesus also had been immersed and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, 
and a voice came down from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so much more could be said of these things, and maybe we'll say a little more next week, but... uh, Ah, well, that's the sound of the mission bell, meaning, as you might know if you've been with us before, that it's our mission segment of the week. Time to consider what implications for mission there might be in the passage that we've been looking at. And remember, when we think of mission, we want always to be thinking first of the mission of God, and then consider our place within his mission. And as I know we've said before, it's not the people of God who have a mission, it's the mission of God that has a people. The sending of the prophet John, the sending of the word of God, the sending of the spirit of God upon the Son of God. There's so much to be seen here of the missional activities of God. But what of the response of the people to the missional activities of God? What are we to do? What are we to encourage others to do in response to all that God has done in reaching out to those with whom he longs to restore fellowship? In a word that Luke uses more than any other writer of the New Testament scriptures, we are to repent and urge others to do the same. It's not enough to simply dunk people in the water. It's not enough to get them to go to church, whatever that might mean. Uh, For as long as mankind has lived on the face of the earth, we have been called to change. And there's not one of us who's not in need of making changes to our lives. It's not simply something we do when we first encounter Jesus. It's the nature of the life he calls us to live, a life that is to be lived in radical opposition to the norms of the societies in which we live. We're not to be like everybody else. We are to be fundamentally different. And that difference begins from the inside and works its way out in the way we treat those around us. If we're not teaching this to those who would be disciples of Jesus today, then we're not really teaching the whole message of Christ. It's not enough to simply say that we need to repent. We need to speak in ways that are more specific, more readily understood. So when people ask us, well, what should I do? We need to understand the kind of lives that each other are living and help and encourage each other, not in judgment, but in encouragement to make the changes that we need to make in order to live our lives with God. And all of this, 
all of us, we're, we're all in this together. As we come to the end of this week's edition of In Context, why don't you let me know your thoughts? You can message us on Facebook. Look out for the truthfm.uk page. You can tweet us at truthfm.uk or you can email me at patrick at truthfm.uk and I really would love to hear from you. But until next week, let me wish you God's richest blessings. May he bless each one of us according to whatever needs we might have, whether we know what those needs are or not. May he bless us abundantly so that we also might be a blessing to those around us. And let us be mindful of the needs that we see in others, that we might serve them and help them to bring their lives back under the authority of Christ. As always, thank you for being with us this evening.